Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 106 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and I recently had the opportunity to speak on the Business of Podcasting panel at Startup Week Columbus. And if there's one thing I noticed, it's that a lot of people out there are interested in starting their own podcast, but aren't sure where to start. So we've decided to put together a podcast startup package with everything we've learned about building and growing a podcast to help you get there. You can pre-register for the Conquering Columbus podcast startup package now by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. And that starts with 301 Original. In today's market, the brands that pull ahead know how to represent themselves well. 301 Original is seeking to understand how your brand can be visually depicted by illuminating your brand values and showcasing what sets you apart. The team over at 301 Original specializes in commercial photography, web design, graphic design, and social media marketing. With a conversational approach, Kyle and his team will uncover your brand's creative needs and deliver excellence in support of your goals. 301 Original, currently published in Forbes, Petapixel, and GQ, has a reputation for outstanding creativity that attracts new business for individuals, startups, and Fortune 500s. Contact Kyle Asperger today at 301original.com to elevate your brand. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors. Let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. And today on the show, we got Mr. Greg Lehman. 
And Greg is the owner and distiller over at Watershed Distillery here in Columbus. And Greg graduated from Ohio State and Fisher College of Business with a degree in operations management while also playing for the varsity volleyball team there at OSU. And Watershed has become a really popular location here in Grandview for both their bourbon and their food. And we're really excited to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Greg. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and how's your day going so far? It's been good. You know, as an entrepreneur, there's definitely, uh, I've gone through the gamut, some real highs and some lows here and there. But at the end of the day, I think I'm farther ahead than I was uh, at the beginning. So that's a great thing. Typically, where we like to start it off before we jump into too much on what you have going on today is kind of talk about your background, maybe childhood where sure. you grew up and then up through college and then we'll uh, progress from there. Yeah, so I grew up just north of Columbus. Uh, I always consider myself from Columbus but grew up kind of in the country in Galena, Ohio, and went to Big Walnut, just north of the city, and then went to Ohio State. So spent a lot of time here growing up and loved Columbus and was fortunate to be a Buckeye and had a great experience. It was one of those things going into college, like at 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so at Ohio State, you have this huge opportunity walking in there where they're really good at a lot of things. And so I explored a few different options and ended up at Fisher College of Business and loved it. Grew up with any siblings or anything? Or? Yeah, I had two brothers, one older, one younger, and then an older sister. So there were a crew of us, and uh, we had a lot of fun growing up. And it's it's funny, you know, I went to Ohio State and played volleyball there, and it's because my dad was on the first varsity team at Ohio State, and he started coaching as soon as he was done. So my brothers and I grew up around the game. We grew up playing volleyball since we could walk, and so it was kind of a, a fun way to grow up. We had kind of half a team. You need six players. We had three, and so we'd find other people and we'd play. We played a lot growing up. It was fun. And then when you were getting out of high school, were there other options that you considered besides Ohio State, or was that kind of set in stone? Like, were you recruited by other schools at that point? Yeah, I talked to some other schools, and and it's interesting. I, I visited other schools, and it, but to say recruited for men's volleyball is maybe a bit strong. There were schools that were like, sure, yeah, you can come play here if you want. And maybe it was a bit strong for my talent level. I, you know, I, I was pretty raw at that point, but I was excited to play. And so there were schools that, that wanted me to come there, but I loved Ohio State. And so it was pretty much, uh, unless someone was coming and saying like, we really want you, here's a full ride or something like that, I was going to Ohio State. Sure, sure. and and. When you first started at Ohio State, I know for Josh and I, like when I first got into a college wrestling room, there was a little bit of that shell shock of like, holy cow, these guys are good. Definitely. Uh, was there anything like that for yeah, you? Yeah, when you go from, and I don't want to take anything away from Ohio High School back back in 96 and 95, but when you go against, playing against high school guys and you walk in and you're playing against the best of the best guys, I mean, when I walked in the door, Ohio State was a top 10 program in the U.S., and so these guys, and I'm, I'm playing right against seniors and juniors, and it was pretty incredible. And what's fascinating for me, the way I responded was I absolutely loved every second of it. I couldn't wait for practice every single day to go play against these guys that I had been watching them the last few years, watching them play, going to matches. And so for me, it was this super exciting time just to be at practice. And I didn't care if I got blocked straight down. I was playing against guys that had been playing at a very high level and so I was fired up for the next play and any little win I got I was hanging on to and celebrating and it was pretty awesome. And as you kind of progressed throughout your life what different paths were your siblings taking at this point? Yeah my siblings and I there was a lot of similarities and if you guys have siblings you know but there's some really stark differences so my brother my older brother had started at Ohio State and he figured out pretty quickly 
he didn't want to, school wasn't for him at the time and he went and started working and he ended up becoming an operations manager at a, at a local company and then eventually he went back and got his degree but you know he wasn't as into volleyball now my little brother on the other hand he ended up playing at Ohio State as well so he was three years behind me and when he graduated high school, he looked at some different schools as well, but ended up at Ohio State. And so we played there. We were there a couple of years together. So my last year there, he was my roommate. He had he was lucky there because at that point I had a car and a pretty nice place. And I'm like, man, that was his first apartment outside the dorms. I'm like, you got it made. For me, I remember like it was rough first first couple of years out. But yeah, anyway, I, we all have good different experiences, good and bad. Right. So. I mean, I could tell you some stories about my first roommates, but we won't get into that. Right. Um, right. From there, kind of, I want to talk about operations management and business. Kind of what drew you to that side of things uh, when it comes to studying? And after you graduated, did you do anything else? Like, what were some of your first initial roles? Yeah, I had a very non-traditional path. So I got into business because I really liked, my dad owned a small business growing up and I was fascinated by that. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, I graduated high school and it was like, be a doctor, be an engineer. But then I pretty quickly realized, no, like I'm wired this way. Fisher makes a lot of sense. I actually graduated with two, two majors, operations management and international business. And then uh, I had a job lined up from internships. We went to the final four in volleyball my senior year. And right after the final four, my coach gives me this piece of paper. He's like, hey, this team from Switzerland reached out. And they're really interested if you want to go over there and play. You're not going to make a lot of money, but they'd cover your expenses and get you over there. And you'd have plenty, plenty to, you know, to live off of. So I ended up going over there for a couple of years, playing in the Swiss League. It was fascinating. I was broke, but loved it. It was one of those experiences where you're playing ball, getting to see Europe, learning a whole new culture. And it was great. It was a huge experience. So my second year over there, I realized like, all right, I'm pretty much done. I'm not making money. I'm having fun, but it's time to like grow up and get a, a real job. And so one of the families that came and visited me, he was really tied into the pork industry. And so when I came back, he knew I was coming back and he's like, give me a call. I might, might have uh, something for you. And I now know why he said, give him a call. Because as soon as I got back, I gave him a call and said, Hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. And he's like, he lived in North Carolina. He's like, come down here. I'll introduce you to someone in the pig industry. And, uh, I think it could be interesting. And so I ended up taking this job for a small company down there that manufactured syringes, which go into the pig industry. And he wanted me to set up his international distribution. So everything outside the US. So I was selling in Europe, I was selling in South America and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, anywhere but the US. And, uh, and I say that his real motivation for introducing me to this company, this guy, my friend, he ran a company in the same building. And as soon as I got down there, within a week of me taking the job, he hires my wife to, to help run his purchasing department. I was like, ah, now I see what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> no, but it was great. It was a great fit for both of us. She loved it there, and he was a great guy to work for, and, and I loved it where I was and got a lot of experience with the international side. Plus, this company I was working for, as I look back now, it's roughly the size that Watershed is right now. So it was truly a small company. I was reporting to the owner. I was working for peanuts, but I was making uh, the, the experiences I was getting were huge. I was involved in the marketing, the sales, the operation, the finance, the uh, accounting. I was literally touching every part of his business for him. And so that was a fascinating, fascinating opportunity. I did that for three years uh, before moving on and, and working for some of the bigger drug companies, which kind of 
was a whole different experience. So, so at that time, I mean, that was probably your first real job out of college, aside yeah. from continuing to play volleyball, and you were thrown into the fire on all these different elements that you're managing. How did you manage to jump in there? Were there mentors in that space that were helping you learn these markets and how to branch your way into them? Or well, my the the guy that ran the company, Primatech was the company, and Kim Quinn was the owner. He was definitely a mentor, and then Randy Mapes, the guy that introduced me to uh, to Kim and brought me down there he was a mentor as well and he's still he's still a, a good mentor but those guys they realized I was pretty passionate and was ready just to jump in and do stuff and and they would help me when I needed help and get out of my way when they when they thought I was rolling and doing some good things and and there was probably like looking back now I it wasn't efficient what I did but I worked really hard at it and and I wasn't afraid to say okay if we're going to South Africa that means I got to go to South Africa and I'm going to meet with every distributor there and I'm going to try to do as much as I can ahead of time and, and line some stuff up. And then if things are going well, we're going to try to do business there. And it was, it was a little bit of that. You don't know what you don't know. And so you just go out and like wide open, get it done. But I think coming and you guys will get this coming from the background of playing sports at a division one school, you're not afraid of hard work and you're not afraid, you know what it takes to get to that level. And, and especially in wrestling, you guys know, like, it's your, you got to do the work. No one's doing it for you. There's no one else out there that's like you're leaning on to, at least with volleyball, I can play on a team with a lot of guys better than me and we will outperform what I can do. But it, it, it definitely takes a lot of work. And so I think that's one thing I wasn't afraid of, just to jump in and go for it. And what were the next roles after that? You said there was a couple different pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, so I, I one of the things at Primatech, this small little company, we sold to distributors, which would sell to farmers, but we also sold to Pfizer and Shearing Plow and Behringer Ingelheim, all these big drug companies all over the world. And so I developed a lot of relationships there, and eventually those guys were, they recruited me to come work for them and sell for them. And so I went from selling syringes to selling the actual drugs that were in the syringes, vaccines, anti-infectives. And so I worked for Shearing for a couple of years and then went to work for Pfizer. And so that's when I started Watershed, I was working for Pfizer. Okay. And was this still, I mean, were these medicines still targeted towards like the pig industry or was there more variety, varied industries that you were targeting at this point? It was focused completely on the pig industry. Okay. And so I worked for my last job at Pfizer, I was working basically with all the pig producers in Ohio and the vets that handle those. And that sounds like a lot, but it was really, I had like four vets that I was working with and let's call it 10 customers. Like there's not many big pig producers, but I'd go spend, you know, the whole day with one customer, maybe three days in a row with one customer, depending on what was going on. And, and I really, it was, it was a cool job because I wasn't so much selling as I was going in and problem solving, which is I think where I work best. So, you know, if they had a, a performance issue or disease issue, I would go in and we would start swabbing pigs and trying to identify the disease and then trying to identify the best vaccine protocol or approach to solve the problem and, and help them with their herd health. It was pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. If you, like, I could talk for hours about the pig industry, which most people are like, that's great. What's the next topic? <laughs> well, I'm kind of interested, though, with that kind of uh, insight into that industry. Like, do you have any particular convictions on it that you're comfortable talking about? Or is it kind of just... Uh, yeah, I will say that, you know, we live in a world right now where antibiotic-free is the buzzword that you hear that I probably don't get behind 100%. Because here's my view on, 
on antibiotics in, in pigs at least. And this wasn't on the on the outline. Yeah, in case no, anybody's no, wondering if that was one um, of our bullet points. Uh, I like the very judicious use of antibiotics. So I see like if you go in a barn and the farmer's walking through and he sees a sick pig, I think that sick pig should be treated. Like we don't want it to suffer. There's no reason to watch it suffer. We have medicine that will help that pig get better. And so giving that, pulling that pig out, putting it in a pen, treating it, letting it get healthy, and then making sure it stays out of the food chain until those antibiotics are out of its system, I think is the best way to do it. I think mass medicating with antibiotics is not the right way to go. That's the, I think there's many more producers that are trying to get away from that. I think that is what kind of created the uproar against antibiotics, and I think that's wrong. And I think you're seeing people get away from that. Not... I don't want to speak for the whole industry, but I think they're, the right people are, are doing it that way. And so that's how I feel. Like, uh, you know, I understand the arguments to be completely antibiotic free, but you have a live animal that you are letting suffer if you do that. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. So from there, let's kind of jump in. How does a, a pig antibiotic salesman right, right. get into <laughs> distilling? <laughs> It's a, you know, when you put it that way, yeah, definitely scratching my head. Uh, So behind the scenes, I've always been uber fascinated with with business, small business. You look at my background growing up, um, you know, working for my dad. My first, my dad used to pay me 50 cents an hour to go clean at his place. And I I was pumped to do it. And then I started a lawn care company and, and started mowing lawns in the neighborhood. This is probably like early middle school time late late elementary school and I realized man you can make a lot more money mowing lawns than you can working for your dad at 50 cents an hour so I've always been fascinated with small business and so behind the scenes even working for Pfizer I was always looking like do I think I'm ready and what skill set do I need to get ready to do something on my own and I'll be honest working for a big company they have so many training programs I really feel like while I was working for Pfizer, I almost got my MBA. It's, it's, I kind of equate it to that. I was always taking classes, always taking professional development stuff within their organization. They do a phenomenal job investing in their employees. And so I took full advantage of that while I was there. And Dave, my business partner now, he and I always talk. If we had started this at 22, 23, even 25, like right out of school or a few years after, we would have failed, guaranteed. We learned so much in the time from graduation to, you know, 10 years in. You you mature a lot, you see how business works, you develop your skills, you learn to sell yourself, you learn to sell your products, you learn so many things. And so I think behind the scenes, I was always looking like, am I ready? What ideas do I have? What can I pursue? And so when I moved back from North Carolina to Columbus, that's when I really thought, okay, uh, it's, it's time to start really pushing this. And that's about the time I met Dave and we started writing business plans. And it was like my hobby was writing business plans and trying to figure out if they made sense. And we wrote a lot of business plans that don't make sense. Um, But I think I would say that's one of the things that's really helped us be successful. We're so geeked out about business. We put so much effort into planning, but we weren't tied to any one idea. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I would love yoga and I'm a yoga instructor and I'm the best yoga instructor and thought I'm going to start a yoga studio, but I don't know anything about, you know, HR and selling and uh, hiring and all that stuff. We were geeked out about running a business and, 
you know, getting the financing and writing the plan and putting the equipment together and running manufacturing and operating it smoothly and trying to sell it, the, the whole thing. So I think that's a huge advantage we had. Um, we looked at a lot of industries with a very open mind as opposed to really trying to sell ourselves on it. And that's a unique approach from a lot of the other entrepreneurs' stories that we've had on the show in terms of their perspective to creating a business. Normally they have a problem they've identified and they want to solve, so they start building their business plan around that. For you guys, you knew that you wanted to be in business and you started to look out and try to identify problems. So I'm curious, when you were developing those business plans, were there any particular areas at all that they were centered around? Or like, how are you looking into certain industries and saying like, hey, I think that this is a problem or I think that this is where we can add more value than is currently being delivered? Well, I think the one thing that always came back with us was we love this community and we wanted to be involved in the Columbus community. And we thought, how, how can we do something that is bigger than just a business, but somehow gets the community excited or adds something extra to the community? We, we, and at the time, I think a lot of that was fueled by, I was traveling all over. Dave was traveling a lot out, uh, out of Columbus for his job. And so we really wanted to, to be here and be a part of it. And we felt like we were missing just being involved in the city. And, and I say city now, it, it, and as we've grown, we've, we've obviously expanded outside of the Columbus market, but we really feel tied to a lot of the communities that we're in, whether it's Cleveland or Cincinnati or Atlanta. We've noticed that it's been really fun to get to know those communities and be a part of those communities. But we really, so we really wanted something that, that tied us to the community. And then um, we wrote a lot of really boring business plans and we, it was one of those things where you just couldn't get excited about it. And when we came up with this idea to distill, it was almost inspired from the brewing industry. Uh, and we saw what was going on there, but, but we thought it was overplayed. And we talked at length about starting a brewery and we're like, no, that doesn't make sense. There's too many. And this is, you know, back in 2008, 2009, <laughs> that was clearly the wrong, uh, the, the, the wrong assessment, but we love the restaurant industry as well, and we thought, no, we're never going to open a restaurant. Too many of them fail. So we even said to each other, we're never opening a restaurant, which, as you know, we, we, we backtracked on that also. But when we came up with this idea to distill, we got really excited about it, and pretty quickly we fell in love with it, and we thought, this is it. This is what we were meant to do. And, and when we were thinking of ideas, um, one of the inspirations was this town I lived in in Switzerland they, they, they have fierce support for local in Switzerland. They have a lot of small towns. And so I lived in Appenzell and they had this little soda manufacturer. They had a, a brewery, they had a distiller. They had all these different, almost like a hostess manufacturer right there. They, they had all these different little businesses that they fiercely supported locally. They even made their own train cars. So this is like a tiny, this is almost like Delaware County. No, it's smaller than Delaware County. This is like Licking County, and you had Lancaster. Is Licking County Lancaster? Anyway, this is like Lancaster having all this stuff, making their own train cars, like the whole thing. So it's not a big place, and it's, but they're supporting themselves. And so we would talk at length, like, what were they doing there that maybe we could do here? And that's when the distilling came up, and we're like, what if we made gin? What if we made bourbon right here? And pretty quickly, we started studying it. We thought this is this could be viable. There's a few others around the U.S. doing it. Nobody's doing it here, and then it it kind of snowballed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're still we still kind of approach each day thinking, let's see if we can make it work. Let's see if we can make it go further. Hey there, conquerors. We're gonna take a quick break here to thank a couple of our sponsors, and that starts with Auto Slash. 
Now, I've told you before how AutoSlash can help save you money on your next car rental by scanning the internet for coupons and discounts, but today, I want to talk about a real example. So this is a story from their Facebook page. It's a Facebook review from a guy named Phil, and there are seriously thousands of reviews like this there, so go check them out. But Phil says, I've used AutoSlash several times, and the first time I was skeptical, but they immediately found me a deal on an SUV rental that was 40% lower than anything I could find anywhere else including directly at the auto rental agency and any of the so-called cheapo sites. But then, to top it off, within a week, they found me an even better deal. Overall, I ended up paying less than 50% of what I thought I'd have to pay when I first started shopping, and since then, I've used AutoSlash each time I've rented a car, and each time they've come through with a stellar deal. So take it from us and Phil, you can't find a better deal on a car rental than with AutoSlash, so head on over to AutoSlash.com the next time you need to rent a car. We also want to thank 301 Original. In today's market, the brands that pull ahead know how to represent themselves well. 301 Original is seeking to understand how your brand can be visually depicted by illuminating your brand values and showcasing what sets you apart. The team over at 301 Original specializes in commercial photography, web design, graphic design, and social media marketing. With a conversational approach, Kyle and his team will uncover your brand's creative needs and deliver excellence in support of your goals. 301 Original, currently published in Forbes, Petapixel, and GQ, has a reputation for outstanding creativity that attracts new business for individuals, startups, and Fortune 500s. Contact Kyle Asperger today at 301original.com to elevate your brand. All right, Conquerors, let's get back into this episode. Absolutely. So what, what were some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you get to that point, you say, okay, we're going to distill gin, bourbon, that sort of thing, and uh, you're taking a look at some of these businesses. But from taking that to an, from an idea and a concept and putting it into play, kind of what were some of the biggest challenges along that path? Just knowing where to start, I think that's what most people come up against, they, and they ask, where do you start? Because here, we were two guys, and we didn't have any money, and we didn't know how to distill. So clearly, we had some barriers, but we thought to ourselves, we love the idea, and everything's been done before. So there's guys that know how to distill, and there's guys with money, guys, girls, whatever, there's people that can do both of those. And so we thought, well, let's just start using our network and figuring out who those people are and if we can learn that information. And if we can, great. Like I said at the beginning, we weren't tied to an idea. We loved this idea, but we, if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. So then we set out and we started learning who could teach us how to distill. And once we figured that out, we learned who could sell us all the equipment. And then with that, we could start to figure out a business plan. And I remember going around and talking to distillers and Dave and I would visit them and we'd ask them any question they'd answer. And we'd kind of leave and we'd look at each other and be like, man, those guys were way smarter than us and they sold 2,500 cases their first year. So we're not gonna sell that many, clearly. And then you know, we'd talk to some and be like, man, I think we're a little smarter than those guys. They sold 500 their first year. We could probably beat that. And so we kind of put this, um, this rough chart together if we did really well where we'd land and if we didn't do great where we'd land and we kind of mapped out the sales side because i'll be honest when you're writing a business plan all the costs are pretty fixed like if you do if you study hard enough you can figure out what equipment costs what you know the trash costs what the cable costs you can figure that stuff out but when you project out your sales you are shooting in the dark and I remember, you know, putting these spreadsheets together to project it out and you'd put down, you know, you'd look five years out and we'd be making, after five years, you know, we'd be making $4,000 and we're like, oh, no one's putting money into that. So we'd adjust the sales a little bit each year and the percentage growth and we'd look, oh, we're making 6 million. No one's going to believe that. Like, and so then you'd try to dial it in and get it where it was like, 
seems seems reasonable, seems believable. And when we could sell ourselves on that, uh, based on what other distilleries had done, we were like, okay, I think I think we've got something here. But as far as the biggest barrier, I don't want to put one thing out there because I think for everyone it's different. I think you just got to put your head down and start walking down the path. And don't look back. Walk down the path, and if you find yourself on a, on a super high as you're going down the path, you got to keep your head down because something's about to knock your head off. Uh, and if you find yourself on a super low going down the path, that's when I think you can look back and you can see where you've come from because anytime we've been at a real low or, or even when we were starting and we hit a low point, you kind of look back and you're like, wow, we, we've come a long way. We really have moved the ball forward on this thing. Like, let's not get too caught up in this moment and let's see if we can keep going. And it's worked for us so far. You know, we, we were able to raise the money that we needed. We wrote the business plan. We raised the money. We got product on the shelf and people are liking the product. And so it's been growing. It's been nice. So the distillers that don't know how to distill, how did you find someone at that point? And like, I mean, so I guess what do the granular steps look like from taking that from ideation to creation? We turned into students of distillation and we studied everywhere we could, whether it was buying a textbook, following New Zealand blogs. It's, It's legal to home distill in New Zealand, so there's a lot more blogs and it's in English. So talking to every distiller that would pick up the phone when we called, you know, having conversations with distillers that were upset we were asking them, having conversations with distillers that were pumped we were asking them, and just trying to figure out who would who would listen. There was a huge resource in the still manufacturers. So we got lucky. We were in before the big boom. So we were in the first 100 micro distillers here in the U.S. Today, you know, you're eight years later, there's, there's probably 1,700, 16 or 1,700 today. And so we really got in before the boom and people had more time to talk. They were more willing to talk. They hadn't been approached by everyone and their brothers saying, hey, I want to start a distillery. But we even paid to take classes. We paid uh, a guy in Chicago just to let us come in and, and spend time in his distillery. So instead of, I mean, he put us to work and we were paying him. But it was totally worth it. Like er- everything that we did, you know, we, would, we were like sponges trying to soak it all in. And I think the thing that sold us on it, it wasn't like, you know, studying this for a year and, and going around to distilleries, we felt like we were expert distillers. But what what sold us, right or wrong, you know, you look back and you're like, I made a decision based on that? Like, that's terrible. But I remember having the conversation with Dave where we looked at each other and we're like, you know, I think we can make good stuff and we're pretty sure we can make good stuff and we'll work hard to do that. But let's say we don't. Don't you think it's possible to still do pretty well. Like, look at Jägermeister. That stuff tastes terrible, and they sell a ton of it. (laughs) And so, I mean, we literally had that conversation. Uh, Now, we've been fortunate. I I love the stuff that we're producing, and I think we've we've bought the right equipment and partnered with the right people and buy the right ingredients and and worked really hard at our recipes at the beginning, and I think our products are amazing. But we had the conversation that if Jägermeister can sell as much as they do and taste as bad as it does... Uh, we ought to be okay in this industry. So, he's the way I'm caught up on Jägermeister. N- nothing but, against uh, Jäger. <laughs> so, what does the stage of the business look like today, then? Uh, so, fast forward to today. You know, we're, we'll have our eight eight year anniversary uh, this September. And after saying we weren't going to start a restaurant, we started one in 2017, uh, right at the beginning of the year. Um, we sell our product mostly in Ohio still. So the the distillery sales. It's still mostly Ohio, but we sell in Kentucky, 
Georgia, Illinois. We sell out on the East Coast in New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut. And we're getting ready to open the Michigan market. We're really excited about going into Detroit. That's a, a fun city right now, and we're excited about opening that up. Hopefully here um, in the next 60 to 90 days, we'll, we'll be opening that up. Sure. And just to jump in there, where have you seen the most success in terms of like areas, and, and, and maybe not just success, but like speed of adoption or you know, like really picking it up when you introduce it to a particular market? So our success really comes in connecting with people. So when we go out, when we started, it was just Dave and I turning on the still, selling bottles, distilling the product, uh, sweeping the floor, everything was us. And what we did, we took the approach of let's go talk to restaurant owners, let's go talk to bartenders, let's talk to liquor store operators, and let's tell them our story. Let's get them excited about Watershed, tell them why we're here, what we're doing, so that they can be the voice out there. And bartenders loved it, and they started telling the story. And really, I think that's that was a huge advantage for us because um, we just weren't big enough. And as we've grown, we see like the it's where you get those owner operator places where they still care and the people still care about where their stuff comes, about the stories they're telling, about the reasons they have product behind the shelf. That's where we see our successes, um, whether it's uh, you know right downtown or uh, Grandview Avenue or German Village, or you know you go to other cities and they have the different names on the neighborhoods, but similar neighborhoods, and I think that's where we see success. It almost seems like in such a well-established um, industry like this, you have that push-pull relationship, and you guys obviously started with the push more than, more than getting it pulled off the shelves by your brand name. Right. Pushing into these small owner-operator locations where you can tell that compelling story. Um, what does that compelling story look like when you're talking to you know somebody who's not familiar with Columbus, Ohio, where you guys started, and they're in, in a total another mm -hmm. city? Are they still resonating as well with that, or...? Yeah, it absolutely resonates. So the story turns from, you know, if, if at the beginning when I walked into a place down the street, I'd say, hey, I make this right down the street. You guys want to try it? And the answer was 100% yes. I mean, everyone was like, you guys made this legally? Yeah, sure, I'll try it. Um, and we even had people at that point where it was kind of like, you know, they before they try it, some would be like, I'll bring it in if you make it down the street. And I was always like, well, well you got to try it for like, see what you think. Like, I, I want you to be impressed. So it's it's not the same story when you walk into a place in Atlanta, but but it's similar. People like buying from people. And so when you walk in, uh, you know, I, I still have that conversation. Hey, I'm, I make this product or if it's our our team. Hey, we're a small group of people up here in Columbus. We make this product. Here's what goes into it. Here's how we do it. You know, we think we think you'll like it. We think you'll be excited about it. And so it's still people making products and people selling to people. And I think that's the big thing. You know, I think this local movement is so powerful because it gives you a chance to buy from people and buy and, and see where stuff's coming from. So that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're if I'm walking in in Cleveland or Detroit or Atlanta. If I'm sitting there explaining what I make and why we make it, I think people stop and listen either place. And at, at any of your markets currently, are you guys at a large enough scale where you can start connecting with like large distributors or whatever the next path is instead of just hitting these one-off shops and kind of... Yeah, so we have distribution. The liquor industry is tricky. Every state makes their own liquor law. So as we branch outside of Ohio, it's, it's hard because we have to go study that state and figure out how to do business there. 
but every state you have to have a distributor. So in Kentucky, we have a distributor. In, in Georgia, we have a distributor. And they do a nice job of helping us with the logistics. But um, each distributor has a different ability to go actually sell your product. And, and they do. Like, they do go sell it. Um, but it's not – they also sell a lot of other stuff. And so um, I think – it's not fair without giving the distributor some some good resources to expect them to like grow your brand huge. Um, they'll do what they can with it, but I think it's more about uh, it definitely helps if we're in the market or we have people in the market kind of helping tell the story and supporting them, supporting the distributor. Okay, so and, and for for your team then, you know, what does your plan for growth over the next five, 10 years looks like? Kind of where do you see Watershed going? We will continue to grow in Ohio. Uh, we have a great market here. We have a lot of, it's a giant industry. So there's a lot of uh, growth opportunity here. And we're, uh, I always say like, if we're having fun in a market, we're gonna keep putting resources in and, and seeing where it goes. And Columbus has been a huge supporter. They've been amazing to us. And so I, I think we'll continue to grow. I'm amazed at just, um, I'm amazed at how many times I go and, in Dublin or Worthington and someone asks like, Oh, what do you do? And I tell them, they're like, we have a distillery here in Columbus. And I, in my world, everybody knows about watershed, but I know that's so not true. And there's so many people out there that have no idea that we make bourbon right here in Columbus and gin right here in Columbus. And so I think there's still a lot of work we have to do to tell people what we're doing here. Um, but that said, we'll, we'll also, we want to open a few more markets. So, you know, we're in New York, but we're not in Pennsylvania. So it may, it would make sense to, to, to be in Pennsylvania, I think. And like I said, we're opening up the Michigan market and uh, we're in Illinois, but we're not in Indiana. So it makes sense to be there. So there, there's some stuff that seems logical that uh, if we get the opportunity and the distributor will pick us up in those states, I, I think we'll get excited and, and do some fun stuff there. It'd be fun to spend time in Pittsburgh and Philly. And um, I never think of it as a state. I always think of the cities that are in that state. And uh, I, I think that's why we started with Chicago, New York, and Atlanta. You think about three cities on the eastern half of the U.S. that are, that are a lot of fun and doing some really cool food and drink stuff. Those three are, are right up there. Uh, so they've been fun just to go to. You know, when we go to the city, we're going to the best restaurants, to the best bars, and it's always fun. And what does the kitchen side look like? Do you guys think you open more locations there? or? Uh, I, I always say we're not in the restaurant business. And I don't want to say never, say never, because at the beginning we said we're never opening a restaurant. Now I've switched that to we're not in the restaurant business, but we do own a restaurant. Uh, I mean, it's really, it's for us, that kitchen and bar is an experience. Uh, it's a watershed experience. So you come in and you have amazing food, amazing cocktails, and you get to see where we make the stuff. You get to, to experience the brand. We're always doing really cool different things with the menu. So our cocktail menu changes each quarter. It's uh, the guys that put it together are super funny and witty, and they have so much fun with it. The whole team gets involved, from uh, from our marketing to graphics to the bartenders, and uh, it always turns out great. But that's a way to come in and experience Watershed, experience the brand, see a bit of our personality, see why we do what we do, uh, and then and then hopefully go tell others about it and and uh, maybe take a bottle home when you when you leave at the end of the night but i think that works at the distillery I, i'm not sure that works if if it's in atlanta or if it's in cincinnati it's not quite the same thing 
and I don't know if I don't know if I could survive opening another restaurant. That's a hard thing to do. So our our team does a great job with it, and I love that they're crushing it there. But uh, <laughs> to give you perspective, the very first day our restaurant opened, this is why I don't uh, get to do anything in the restaurant. The very first day we opened, we're about an hour from opening. And I'm all excited. Everybody's excited. I mean, you open in a restaurant, everyone's pumped. And so I walk up front. My office is in the back. I walk up front and I talk to the, to the general manager. I'm like, what can I do to help? I'm, I'm here to help. And he says, go grab. There's a glass rack on the uh, dishwasher in the kitchen. Grab it. Bring it in here to the bar. Uh, and we can start uh, setting that glassware out. So I hustle in there, grab the glass rack, pull it out of the dishwasher. And I take one step and the bottom fell, falls out of the glass rack. All 24 glasses fall to the ground. Every single one of them shatters into pieces. Of course, it makes huge noise. The whole team come, comes running in there, and they're like, it, it, I think the GM took the, the rack, the, the remains of the rack out of my hand, and he's like, dude, we got it. Don't worry about it. We're, we're, you're, we're good. Just head to the back. And pretty much that's it. So now like, uh, I'm banished from the restaurant unless I'm eating or, or they're enjoying the, the drinks. So um, we've been lucky with that team for sure. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, that story is a great place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show. It's centered around uh, the theme of conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about what it means to Josh and I, what do you think of when you hear the phrase and how does it apply to your life? I think it's one of those things. If you live uncomfortably, you're going to constantly learn and push yourself to be the best version of yourself that there is. You know, we, we don't have that saying around watershed. We talk about grit and we talk about being the best we can be. And I think, but I think it's really similar. So there's an uncomfortableness every year and Dave and I feel it. So when you start out and you're trying to spend money on sales and marketing to go tell the story, it feels like any little amount feels like way too much, but you got to do it. You got to sell your product or you're not going to be in business. And every year that number gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it feels uncomfortable. Any decision we make now, the dollar amount attached to it is so much bigger. I look at our payroll now and it's bigger each month. It's bigger than what we what we made top line revenue in a month the first year out. I mean, it's like I look at our payroll and I just scratch my head and it seems like it's gigantic, but it's needed. Our team has to be that big. And so I think if you're gonna keep growing when we first started Watershed, I thought, you know what? Pretty soon it's, this is all going to feel comfortable because we're going to have money in the bank and it's going to make sense. Well, there's you're never like I'm convinced now you never get comfortable if you have a small business. You're always pushing the accelerator. You're always trying to grow. You're always trying to to do the next thing. And I uh, we're nowhere near the same level. But um, if you've read Phil Knight's book Shoe Dog, it's pretty fascinating when you hear in my mind nike like nike was never like about to go bankrupt it's nike it's gigantic you know but if you read how he started and how he got going i think like whoa dave and i are the most conservative guys out there compared to what he what he did but yeah you you see that i think it i think it's a good way to push yourself to be the best you can be that's how i take it well greg Thanks a lot. That's a great answer. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on Conquering Columbus today. And uh, Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That's Greg Lehman. He's the owner and distiller over at Watershed Distillery. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Learned a lot. We will talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, 
Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with 301 Original. In today's market, the brands that pull ahead know how to represent themselves well. 301 Original is seeking to understand how your brand can be visually depicted by illuminating your brand values and showcasing what sets you apart. The team over at 301 Original specializes in commercial photography, web design, graphic design, and social media marketing. With a conversational approach, Kyle and his team will uncover your brand's creative needs and deliver excellence in support of your goals. 301 Original, currently published in Forbes, Petapixel, and GQ, has a reputation for outstanding creativity that attracts new business for individuals, startups, and Fortune 500s. Contact Kyle Asperger today at 301original.com to elevate your brand. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital. Through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.